to be a man, to pay somebody to breed, feed, and kill an animal for you does not make you a man. To me, what makes you a man is standing up for what you believe in, despite what culture or social pressure or your friends or family or what the world thinks. I feel like more of a man now, eating a plant-based diet, amongst a population of essentially very heavy meat eaters who uh, think that they're the blokey bugs because they eat the meat. But actually, I think that if you can choose to be plant-based for whatever reasons you want and hold your ground and do it confidently and own that space, that, that to me is, is a, you know, a characteristic of a man. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant-Based News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. My guest on this episode is someone who has an incredible story to share. He is Drew Harrisburg, an exercise physiologist, a sports scientist, and a diabetes educator from Australia. Drew has been thriving with type 1 diabetes for over a decade, and after a diagnosis at age 22, he says his world shifted when he learned he had a chronic condition. But instead of letting it define him, he used it as a catalyst to transform his life. Drew is now a passionate advocate for the plant-based lifestyle and believes in the power of nutrition in preventing and treating disease. He has a website called Drew's Daily Dose, where he shares his insights and tips on how to live well with diabetes. He also has a TED Talk where he reveals the surprising lessons diabetes taught him. Drew is not only living well, but also living strong. He is a fitness enthusiast who loves to challenge himself physically and mentally. He is passionate about smashing stereotypes of nutritional shortfalls of the plant-based diet. He says cutting out animal products helped him to build more muscle than ever before. And he says he's fitter, stronger, and more energetic and at peace with the fact that his actions are aligned with his morals, ethics, and values. I'm excited to talk to Drew about his journey, his philosophy, his achievements, and his advice for anyone who wants to improve their health and happiness. So without further ado, let's welcome Drew Harrisburg to the episode. As always, if you like this episode, don't forget to comment, like, and share. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please go leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Welcome to the PBM Podcast, Drew. Great to finally sit down with you and hear a bit of your story. Thanks for having me, man. We've been trying to do this for a few years now, so I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. I knew something was seriously wrong, so I asked my parents, who are both doctors, to send me for blood tests. The results came back, and there were numerous red flags, all of which were pointing towards one thing, type 1 diabetes. So I went to a diabetes clinic, and I was basically told that I didn't have diabetes yet, but my blood tests were indicating that my own immune system was attacking the cells of my pancreas, destroying their ability to produce insulin. So two weeks later, I go back for a checkup, and the results during those two weeks were pretty normal, so I thought I'd, I'd beaten it. When I get into the doctor's office, they mention that they have a new glucose meter if I want to try it. The number came back and it said 16. The normal range is about four to six. So that was the day that I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. I was told I would need to inject insulin for the rest of my life. I was told the short-term complications of overdosing on insulin, seizure, coma, death. I was told the long-term complications of diabetes, kidney failure, blindness, limb amputations. But then the very next day, something amazing happened. So I woke up in the morning and I ate breakfast. My blood sugar shot up to 25, five times the normal range. I then went to the gym and I did a workout for 60 minutes. And then after the workout, I checked my blood sugar and the number was five. That was the first time in my life that I could actually quantify just how good exercise really is for you because I had an objective insight into my health. So that moment gave me this new sense of control and empowerment and a sense of responsibility to really look after my health. 
As always, before we get started and talk about all the amazing things you've been doing with your life in the last few years, let's go back in time and let's talk about like what brought us together. How did you discover the plant-based and vegan lifestyle? Where did that all begin for you? It definitely came out of the blue for me, something that I didn't see coming at all. I was actually on the other side of the diet culture fence and I was on a very strict ketogenic paleo sort of diet and way of living. And I was a pretty staunch advocate for that way of living because I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 22 years old. And the first sort of dietary pattern that I stumbled upon was the paleo diet as a way to manage diabetes. And for many reasons, it is a good way to manage diabetes because it eliminates processed foods, eliminates refined sugar. There's a focus on whole foods, you know, fruits and vegetables. But, you know, when you often when you find a diet that works for you straight away, you sort of cling to it and you think that it's the absolute solution to everything. So I stuck to that diet for a very long time and it was working quite well for me. And I then decided to transition to a more strict version of a low-carb diet, which led me towards a ketogenic diet because there was a lot of chatter online in the diabetes community of using a ketogenic diet to manage all types of diabetes, type 1, type 2, and all other kinds. So I thought to myself, unless I give this a go, I'll never really know the power of this kind of way of eating as a management tool for diabetes. So I mm. dived in and I began this ketogenic diet for you know a couple of months. It was working well. My blood glucose levels were flat. My insulin requirements are quite low. My diabetes management seemed pretty effortless. And I was able to eat, you know, these very high fat, moderate protein, low, very low carb meals and have a relatively easy time controlling my glucose on a day to day basis. So for two months, that was all good. But from about the two month mark to the four month mark, I ran into some some hurdles, which, you know, were pretty frightening at the time because when something's working for you for a couple months and that same thing is not working at all for the next couple months, you don't really know what to do. Do you, do you go back to what was working before that? Do you make a change? And I just realized that at that time, no longer was my blood glucose levels easy to control. I was actually starting to take more and more insulin. So when you have type 1 diabetes, you take what's called a basal insulin dose, which is this insulin that you take sort of, for me, it was at nighttime. And it sits in the bloodstream for about 24 hours as your background insulin to keep you in range. And that number, the, the, the units, the number of units of, of insulin that I was having to take to keep me in range was going up each night. And I would wake up in the morning with high blood glucose levels, which seems very counterintuitive because I wasn't eating any carbohydrates. And this is, just remember, this is a fasting blood glucose level first thing in the morning. So it's not like I'd been eating anything. I was sleeping all night. So what happens is the liver pushes glucose out into the bloodstream. When you are insulin sensitive, which is what you want, the liver will not be pushing it out all the time. It'll actually be able to turn off and say, hey, we've got plenty of glucose in the bloodstream. We don't need to give him any more glucose. We're good. But when you become somewhat insulin resistant or lack insulin sensitivity, that message to turn off that glucose tap is not being sent to the liver and it's just not working. The message is it's not connecting, right? It's like it needs to knock on the door and be like, okay, liver, stop that. But it wasn't happening. So not only that, I was finding that even after some meals, I was having some very variable blood glucose levels, even extremely low-carb meals. I was having these higher blood glucose responses to meals that contained protein and fat. And it was just getting to the point where I was kind of desperate. It wasn't working anymore. Two months earlier, I was on social media raving about the ketogenic diet. I was promoting it to everyone. I was saying how amazing it was. And what I find interesting about this little experiment is if I had stopped two months in, let's say I only did an eight-week experiment, 
my conclusion about the ketogenic diet for diabetes management and general health would have been it is a fantastic way to manage diabetes. Everyone should do it. It's a great tool. If you're not on a keto diet, you're missing out. But fast forward two months and the conclusion is completely different. So my new conclusion after four months on the ketogenic diet was, well, actually, my insulin sensitivity is worse. I'm requiring more and more insulin. My fast glucose isn't as good. And my glucose levels throughout the day are far more variable. They're not as tightly controlled in the normal physiological range. So it was that point I was like, okay, I need to change something. I've got to either go back to what was working before, which was that paleo style of diet, reintroduce carbohydrates, and hopefully I'll get back to the management that I was able to achieve couple months before that or try something completely different which is what i ended up doing thanks to my buddy and our mutual friend simon hill he he sort of he slid into my dms and he just dropped this gentle beautiful message that was basically like hey mate i know the keto diet's working for you but have you seen these lecture slides from michelle mcmacken dr mcmacken who is talking about a plant-based diet for managing diabetes you should check out her website Can you say that again in Simon's husky voice? I'm joking. (laughs) I think a lot of people think that when they're told they have type 2 diabetes that they are committed to a lifetime of pills or even injections. And that's a really hard thing to hear. What I have experienced and what I love to tell my patients and what the science shows is that when you receive a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, that's actually an opportunity. That's an opportunity to start to work towards a healthier lifestyle and ideally a plant-based diet. And that can actually not just reduce the need for medication, but in many cases it can put diabetes into remission. I have seen that myself in my patients and it's one of the most rewarding things about treating patients with type 2 diabetes is that you can almost predict that if they change their lifestyle and start eating a more plant-based diet, that their diabetes will improve and in some cases completely reverse. So mate, I, I thought, you know what, I better read these slides and at least look into this. And that's where it began. I started to research about a whole food plant-based diet for diabetes and you know, what better way to find out if something works than to actually try it for yourself? You know, it's good to have these studies. It's good to see on paper what a dietary pattern is capable of in randomized control trials and in real populations. But when you have diabetes, you get this instant objective feedback into your health that really no one else gets. You get blood glucose levels, and especially if you're wearing a CGM, which is, which is what I've got on, which basically is a continuous glucose monitor. It tells you minute for minute what your blood glucose is doing. And the most important part of this puzzle is what is your insulin requirements? Because that's the part of the picture that actually completes the whole thing. So it's it, what it tells you is for a given amount of carbohydrate, how much insulin do I really require to be able to metabolize it? If one unit of insulin can metabolize more carbohydrate, well, then it shows you that you're insulin sensitive. But if one unit of insulin can only metabolize a little bit of carbohydrate, it means you're a little bit less insulin sensitive or even insulin resistant. So I transitioned to a plant-based diet and um, mate, it's been five years and I wouldn't have stuck to it for five years if it wasn't working because you know the results have been unbelievable. You know, it, Within just a t- couple of weeks, my insulin sensitivity was back. My fasting blood glucose was fantastic. I was able to achieve equivalent flatline blood glucose levels throughout the day as I was on these lower carbohydrate diets, if not better, some days you know, significantly better, just more predictability over the day, easier to manage, get to enjoy delicious carbohydrate rich, sweeter foods. You know, I didn't have to just eat fat and protein all day. So it was just an unbelievable, you know, eye-opening experiment in myself to see that there are extremes 
that can work in the same individual and it maybe one works in one individual and not in another. And to experiment on yourself and get this objective real-time feedback is probably the best way to figure out you know, what dietary pattern is best for you. The average person needs about 0.8 grams for every kilogram of body weight when it comes to protein. But the reality is that most of us are getting a lot more protein than we need, whether we're eating an omnivorous diet or um, a more plant-based diet. So there's not uh, really a need to focus too much on the amount of protein that you're getting. If you're eating uh, a wide range of plant foods, particularly if you include legumes in your diet, um, then you're most likely meeting your, your protein targets. The most important thing when it comes to protein is really the source of your protein. So if you're getting your protein from plant sources, that's associated with a huge amount of health benefits in terms of uh, lowering your risk of cancer as well as heart disease and uh, in general uh, longevity and vitality as opposed to getting your protein from animal sources which tends to be very pro-inflammatory, increases the risk of cancer as well as increases the risk of heart disease and other long-term complications. It's amazing you had such great results and you know time and time again we are sent messages and comments from people from all over the world who have similar health concerns as yours and it's completely transformed their physical and even also mental well-being but let's go back a bit and and for those that don't know let's talk a bit about like what diabetes is because it is a, a bit of an interesting one because if you stopped the average person on the street and said tell me what diabetes is and what causes it people would say sugar people eat too much sugar if we can establish like what is type 1 diabetes what causes it and like what is the the actual biology of it and then what's the difference between type 2 diabetes and the sort of the sort of shift and change in diet between them and how they can affect each other yes great question because this is a topic that is very confusing and if you don't have diabetes or have not studied it it just seems like this blanket term to describe as you mentioned just a condition of you know not being able to eat sugar or eating too much sugar it's just confusing so type 1 diabetes which is the, the kind that i have is an autoimmune disease so what that means is your immune system attacks the own, your, your own cells, so the, the cells in your body, in your pancreas that produce insulin, they get killed off. And once they're gone, you can't make any insulin. So essentially, anyone with type 1 diabetes has this autoimmune attack and they have to administer insulin from outside of the body, either, either through uh, injections, multiple daily injections, or using an insulin pump. But either way, they have to put insulin into the body from an external source. Type 2 diabetes it's not an autoimmune disease, and it's in the beginning, it's not a problem of insulin production. The, the pancreas in somebody with type 2, for the most part, works just fine. The issue is that they become resistant to the insulin that, that, that they make. So they're making enough insulin. In fact, they often make more than enough insulin and hypersecrete insulin to try to combat high, high blood glucose levels. When you're resi resistant to insulin, you can't get the glucose from the bloodstream into the cells of the body. The symptom of both are actually the same. Type 1 and type 2 have a common symptom, which is high blood glucose levels. In one case, type 1, the reason your, your blood glucose levels are high is because you're not making any insulin. So the insulin isn't there to take the glucose out of the bloodstream into the cells. And in the other type, type 2, you're resistant to the insulin. So the blood glucose elevates and you can't get that glucose out of the bloodstream. So it's important to understand the differences. However, the management strategy between the two can actually be very, very similar. So the, the way that they manifest is different, but how you manage it is often very, very similar lifestyle factors. So let's let's zoom in even further. So talk. let's talk about the pancreas and insulin. What is actually going on? You obviously, you know, from the point of like, say I had a big hunk of 
like super white bread, very high in carbohydrate, and you eat it, it goes into your gut, and your body starts to break it down. What is the role of insulin? And how, do, how does this molecule, this substance work? And, and why is it so important? Because obviously, if, we, if our glucose, if there's no insulin, and the glucose shoots up, what happens to us? Great question. So let's say you eat a loaf of white bread or, or a bowl of sugar, your blood glucose level, so the, the sugar will go through your digestive tract, and those glucose molecules will enter the bloodstream. Now you've got more glucose in the bloodstream. So your blood glucose level is now much higher than it should be. It should be controlled in a pretty tight range. Naturally, the body will control it between, in, in my units, it's about four to six millimoles. In the units for the US um, metric, I think it's like, don't quote me exactly, but it's like roughly 70 to 100-ish. So your blood glucose should be controlled between that. When you eat the white bread, it'll start to go up. The pancreatic beta cells, so a specific cell in the pancreas, will recognize that your glucose is up and it knows, your body knows that High glucose levels, especially long-term, is toxic. It is not good for your body. It can cause blindness, kidney disease, nerve disease, and a range of other problems. So you don't want to have high blood glucose levels long-term. So as a result, the pancreas will secrete insulin, which moves through the bloodstream, and it basically acts like a key that unlocks a gateway to the cells of your body because you want the glucose in the cells of your body, and particularly your muscle cells. That's the biggest glucose sink that we have in the body. So we have this beautiful ability to store glucose or carbohydrates that we eat in our muscles as glycogen. And it's a big sink. There's plenty of muscle in our body to store quite a lot of glucose. Insulin is the key that unlocks the, the gateway to the muscles. And it also does the same thing to the liver. You can store glucose in the liver. So you don't want to have long-term high blood glucose levels. And if your insulin works properly, you don't really need to worry about this system. It's automatic. If you're just a healthy individual of a normal healthy body weight, eating a relatively healthy diet and, you know, is, is physically active, this is not something you need to worry about. Like you don't need to be going to, if you don't have diabetes, you don't need to go buy a CGM and stick it in your arm and wear that all the time and track every mouthful of food you're having. It's just, it's unnecessary. It's micromanaging a system that's going to take care of itself. The problem is if you don't have enough insulin as a type 1 diabetic or if you are resistant to insulin, that means you're going to have these chronic elevations in blood glucose levels unless you know how to manage your diabetes properly. Now, the beautiful thing about this system is there is a, another way to get the glucose from the bloodstream into your muscle cells in the case that you're, say, either insulin resistant or your insulin isn't working properly or you, you know, have other issues with the function of insulin. There is another way, which is you know, this beautiful mechanism that I actually stumbled upon the day after I was diagnosed with diabetes. It was an amazing moment for me because I, I, I literally the day before I'd been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in a diabetes clinic. And I was told to just go home and, and track your blood glucose the following the next day. Just track everything you do, every meal you eat, every activity that you do during the day, write it down in a logbook, come back in in a couple of days time and we'll give you insulin and then we can control your blood glucose. So for that day, I didn't have any insulin. They basically said insulin, it's very dangerous if you don't know how to use it properly. So we're going to let, let you just go off, have a day without it. You'll be fine. Your blood glucose will go high. They told me to expect that, but we'll fix it the next day, right? So I go off and I eat breakfast and my blood glucose, you know, skyrockets. I had some oats and fruit and stuff and, and it went five times the normal range. And I was devastated. I was, I, you know, I hated seeing a high blood glucose level because I'm, you know, somewhat of a like perfectionist when it comes to my health. I want to be on top of it, right? So, it, you know, it disturbed me. Anyway, I logged it down, wrote in my book 25 millimoles or whatever it was, you know, five times the normal range, then went to the gym. 
and I did a workout for an hour and I was just in my happy place. You know, that's where I could leave all those worries outside that door and within those four walls of that gym, I could just get a good sweat, get a workout, get that dopamine release and feel amazing. Finished my workout, got out of the gym and checked my blood glucose level, expecting to see 25 because that's what it was an hour before. Glucose had gone back down basically into the normal range. So straight away, I, I was like, okay, exercise is very powerful. This is an incredible tool that I just was able to essentially correct a high blood glucose level just by contracting my muscles. And the mechanism is very clever. So what it does is it's called GLUT4 translocation. Fancy scientific term, but what it basically means is when you contract your muscles, the glucose gateway, which is in the muscle cell, moves to the surface of the cell, which means it's now open for glucose to enter from the bloodstream. So you get this free entry of glucose just by contracting your muscles. And it's the same gateway that insulin would open. So in my case, or somebody, let's say somebody has insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes and their insulin isn't working properly, it's like the key just won't fit into that, that lock to unlock the gateway, you can contract your muscles. You can do a full body workout. And, and the more muscles you contract, the more of these gateways you open up. So it was this incredible mechanism that is built into every person's body and we all have it, whether you have diabetes or not, this physiology is the same. And it was just an, a moment, you know, for me where I was like, I can actually utilize this every single day and I pretty much have not missed a day since. That's amazing discovery. I mean, I think that's the thing with our bodies. We are primed to function at peak levels when we move and we exercise. Uh, it's one of the most important things, I think. And one of the challenges we we face today in a very sedentary culture where, you know, we sit in front of a computer. Most people, a lot of people sit in front of a computer all day. Then they sit on a bus or a taxi or drive home on the way home. And then they sit in front of the TV, in front of Netflix. And there's just so much sedation that it's just causing, you know, widespread health issues. But, you know, diet is obviously a, a big part of this. Now, in Australia uh, today, we have upward of 5% of the country, almost 1.5 million people have type 2 diabetes, which is potentially likely in part to diet, diet and lifestyle. What are your thoughts on this? Because obviously there's a, you know, there's an amazing documentary called What the Health, which kind of looks at how, you know, a lot of health charities like, you know, the National Heart Association and the National Diabetes Center, where you go on their website and there's recipes, you know, with cheese and eggs and bacon and, you know, foods that could potentially be harming people and causing ill health. People are confused about what to do and what to eat. You know, we will talk a little bit about misinformation and our friend Paul Saladino <laughs> later. But do you feel frustrated as someone who, you know, I don't want to say has the answer, but you've definitely found a solution about for the public when people have this problem and they go online and they want to try and fix it, but there's just so much stuff out there that's just conflicting i mean how does it make you feel knowing uh, knowing what you know yeah i mean it's it's very easy to demonize carbohydrates because especially when you have diabetes it's a, it's a it's a condition of carbohydrate or glucose intolerance right so the first thing that people think is well i can't tolerate glucose let's cut it out when really no fruit no sugar right no blame fruit, you can't have fruit you can't have sugar you can't even have vegetables that contain you know carbohydrates this this is this mindset in, in many people vegetables fruit is evil fruit is evil <laughs> plants are killing you <laughs> you've heard it all now the problem with that mindset is surface level if you just scratch the surface it has some kind of logical pathway that people can get their head around right so you've got this glucose intolerance well let's cut out the glucose and yes, that can be a Band-Aid solution, right? It's like going on a ketogenic diet. It can be a solution to help you keep your blood glucose in range for longer. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't improve your insulin sensitivity. And we have a lot of studies, randomized control trials and other studies showing that when you put people 
on a diet that's very high in saturated fat, which is mostly found in meat, in eggs, dairy, animal foods, compared to swapping out those calories with unsaturated fats from more plant sources, avocado, olive oil, nuts and seeds, etc., you improve your insulin sensitivity. And now this is independent of total calorie intake, just making that macro swap. So you're still having the same amount of fat, you're swapping the source, saturated versus unsaturated. So when you see people, you know, and, and these associations that recommend diets, like there's even there's even a um I saw this diabetic sort of magazine in in Australia. It's all, it's on like supermarket shelves and stuff. And the the recipes are diabetes friendly recipes. And mate, they're full of saturated fat. And I'm thinking these people either have never seen the science showing that those are the exact foods that actually worsen insulin sensitivity and can cause insulin resistance and type two diabetes. It's it's almost like they haven't seen the science or they're just choosing to tell people what they want to hear. You want to hear, you've got diabetes, it's not really your fault because there's a genetic element to it if you have you know, type 1 or type 2, both have a genetic element. But also, you know what, just start to exercise more and eat a little bit less but keep eating what you're eating. And to me, that message is just it falls short because you can do way better. Yes, you, yes, the truth is if you lose weight, so any weight loss will improve your diabetes management, in particular for type 2. If you can lose like 15% of your body weight, a lot of people can reverse or go into remission or, or some degree of reversal. So weight loss is important, but there are studies maintaining. This, but there's studies showing that independent of weight loss, just swapping out saturated fat, eating less animal foods and more plant foods can improve your sensitivity, better diabetes management, more time in, in range, all of these important biomarkers of health. Yeah, it's a huge, I mean, like I was looking at some numbers, you know, in the US, 37 million Americans have diabetes and 95% of them are type 2 diabetes. What is frustrating is that we have answers to solving these health issues, but doctors are still talking about nutrition in a way that is so outdated and so far from the reality of the science when it comes to health. What is it like in Australia? Like, you know, at least in the UK here, we are seeing some shift and some changes. We are seeing, you know, the plant-based health professionals. They're an amazing group of plant-based doctors here in the UK, uh, led by Dr. Shireen Kassam. And they are advocating within the National Health Service to use lifestyle medicine rather than the obvious, oh, you need to stop eating sugar. You need to stop having so much carbs because you just hear, you hear doctors talking in this way. And it's, and it's frustrating because, you know, a lot of people don't know that most GPs, most general practitioners get their nutrition information the same place as everybody else does. The media, friends, family, uh, you know, sometimes a lot of misinformation. But what's it like in Australia? Like, what's the National Health Service like there? Are they, are things changing? Or is it just sort of, you know, business as usual when it comes to diabetes? Changes at that level, like macro level, high level, take such a long time. Just to take a small break from the episode and to let you know that today's episode is kindly supported by our friends over at Compliment. There's really big news. Compliment's massive Planta Pelosa online festival returns again this October, featuring some of the biggest experts in longevity and plant-based health including the wonderful Dan Butner. Dan recently did a show on Netflix called Live to 100, Secrets of the Blue Zones. You must watch it. It's incredible. There's also Chris Carr, Rip Esselstyn, Carly Bodrog, and much more. Plus, you'll get huge discounts of up to 51% off Compliment Nutrients. Claim your free online festival ticket today at lovecompliment.com forward slash PBN and get instant access to longevity guides and amazing meal plans, plus compliment discounts and exclusive access once the event begins. That's compliment.com forward slash PBN for your free ticket to Planta Pelosa. Let's get back to the episode. 
the best thing that you can do for your health is to actually make the change yourself instead of waiting for policy to change and government recommendations to change and all these things. It just takes too long and it's a bit messy, to be honest, in terms of where they get their information, what kind of studies they're looking at. I think that we're probably a little bit slow on the plant-based dietary pattern in terms of helping to manage chronic disease. I will say, though, that most guidelines are pretty good. It's just that people don't follow the guidelines. Most health guidelines are pretty good. Can we be better? Yes, I would say so. And I also think that most people, they, they don't want to hear that you need to take an approach that is somewhat extreme to what they're currently doing. They want you to say, listen, keep doing what you're doing. It's okay. Eat anything and everything you want. Just do it in moderation and don't eat too much. Don't gain too much weight. Get some exercise. Like, It's just very soft messaging. And I understand why, because it's a blanket message that they have to deliver to millions of people across the population. So this public health messaging is tricky. It is tricky. But I think it's important for you know us to have these conversations and people have a thirst for knowledge. So they'll find podcasts like this. They'll find information online and they'll try implement themselves. So the message that I really want to like nail is that a low-carb diet is very sexy and popular online. Doctors will tell people with diabetes that it's the best way to manage diabetes. It can be a solution. Keto, low carb, they can be a solution for blood glucose if you just zoom in on blood glucose. When you step away and look at the bigger picture, what those diets, in my opinion, are missing out on is what is the effect of that way of eating on other chronic diseases, not just one biomarker, not just glucose, blood glucose. Look look at cardiovascular disease, cancer risk, other comorbidities that are associated with diabetes. Is a ketogenic diet helping you with all of those things, or is it just helping you with that little biomarker that we're zooming in on? For many people, they feel happy just zooming in on glucose. They just want to get the glucose in range. Maybe they'll get off some of their meds even on a keto diet. They won't need to take their diabetes medication as much, or their insulin requirements will drop. Look, that's a partial solution for some people. But if you're thinking long-term health, I don't think it ticks that box appropriately. I think that you're limiting foods that are health promoting and you're adding foods in that may worsen other chronic conditions. So to me, the real proof of insulin resistance reversal or improving your insulin sensitivity or improving your diabetes health is to be able to tolerate carbohydrates, right? So if you remove carbohydrates from your diet because they cause the blood glucose spike and you blame the carbohydrates, what you're missing is that there may have been something else causing the insulin resistance in the first place, like high saturated fat intake or just simply being too, too many calories, eating too much processed food, all of these things. So the, the true sign of, it, of, of sort of reversing, so to speak, say type 2 diabetes, is to be able to have good blood glucose control, insulin sensitivity in the presence of carbohydrates in your diet. You've got to test the system with carbohydrates to know if, you're, if, if the system's working. If you're removing from the system... You're not really learning much about your insulin sensitivity, right? It looks good because your glucose control looks good, but you don't know if you're insulin sensitive or not. So I just think that, you know, these kinds of messages are certainly not widespread public health messages and we have a job to do. <laughs> oh, we do. Carnivore diet, time for me to start it. Wait, what? Not just joking. But what we are talking about today is this carnivore diet that is very popular and has a bunch of issues with it that honestly, is gonna create a lot of controversy because these people are very passionate. I think anyone who has an extreme diet is passionate. 100%. If you're like, if you're like Keep, carnal, people no. are, who go into these extreme diets. It's like a religion. Really, really are passionate Zealots. What is the carnivore diet? Carnivore diet consists of eating animal products 
primarily, if not only. Yeah, so uh, the strictest form is truly only animal products. That's right. So that means no plants, no fruits, no vegetables, no nuts, no seeds, nothing. Just animal products. It seems like a good idea. It seems obvious that it's not a good idea. I mean, I right. spent so many years telling my kids to eat their vegetables. Right. I never thought I'd have to say it again now that right. they've grown up and they have kind of good eating habits, but here we are. Uh, recently, um, I looked at Google Trends and searches for the carnivore diet has shot up 4,000%, which, you know, is alarming um, for many reasons. You know, there are people like Michaela Peterson, who's the daughter of Jordan, philosopher, and a lot of people like him, but I think he's a bit of a loudmouth. But anyway, don't, don't come for me. Yeah. <laughs> but Jordan, P Jordan Peterson, you know, he's got many good things to say, but there's also some questionable, questionable things, uh, you know, and he, let's be clear, he's not a dietitian and he's not a, a nutritional expert, but yet him and his daughter are out there advocating for the carnivore diet, uh, which is an all meat diet. Uh, I believe Michaela experienced, uh, is, is living with or some autoimmune diseases, uh, disease, and she has experienced some positive health outcomes on an all meat diet. Talk me through a day's diet. Uh, strip loin. Strip loin steak. That's so you wake it. up in the morning. What do you have for breakfast? Strip loin. What do you have for lunch? Strip loin. <laughs> what do you have for dinner? Sometimes strip loin in soup. And dinner, same? Yeah. So you have three steaks a day. That's yeah, it. yeah. I would change it. I would change it if I could. But uh, as soon as I add anything back in, like there's still some underlying crazy autoimmune problems. Anytime I add anything back in, so I So you have no vegetables or anything? You just... Nope. Nothing. Just the steak? Yeah. Do you have any sauce? No. I mean, it's kind of fascinating. How long have you done this? Six years? Yeah, six years in December. You look like you're bursting with good health. I mean, what do, what do the experts say about this? Uh, depends on the experts, but mostly, you know, you should have died by now is usually the reaction mm. I get. Let's talk a bit about like what this diet is. Let's leave ethics and environment out for a second because that's a whole topic which we can touch on briefly, but someone is potentially diabetic, um, type 1 or type 2, and they switch to an all-meat diet, what kind of things are going to go on in a person's body when they just eat meat and nothing else? Yeah, well, I mean, it's essentially, it's an iteration of a ketogenic diet. Very low to no carbohydrate intake, high protein, high fat. It's actually a higher protein diet than a general keto diet. Keto diet are typically 75% of your calories come from fat, roughly maybe 20% from protein which leaves you with 5% left over for carbohydrates, right? Carnivore, not that I know that much about the macronutrient breakdown, but I would say it's much higher in protein because if you're eating steak and eggs and chicken and liver and you know whatever they eat, it's going to be higher in protein. And depending on what kind of meats and animal foods you're eating, it's probably going to be pretty high in saturated fat as well. So the problems I have, again, is... I think it's a band-aid solution. You have people like Michaela who will, and Jordan will say, and oh, a lot of other people who have tried this diet will say, oh, it changed my life. It helped me with X, Y, Z. You can't discount that anecdote. It probably did. But to really paint the, the full picture, you've got to say, yes, it helped me with these few things, but what is it doing for my risk of all of these other things long-term? That's the problem. We don't know. We don't know what the long-term impact is. A lot of people who believe in the carnivore diet will say that there are chemicals in plants that actually are bad for you, that, that plants have devised a way to have these chemicals to make them less appealing to animals. Yeah, just How, don't need poison ivy. Right, so having said that though, these are the exact same compounds that have been shown to reverse aging or reduce aging like resveratrol, things like in grapes and other plants. So that whole rationale of don't eat plants because we're not supposed to, or not designed to eat plants, totally breaks down on a scientific level. The last thing that I would say about the carnivore diet is, if you go to the National Library of Congress, 
database where all randomized controlled trials and published medical literature exists, there are zero studies on the carnivore diet. There are lots of studies about carnivore diet in dogs, right. in cats, in other obligate carnivores, but we are not them. There are no studies. And so a couple things. In general, diet research, food-based research, supplement research is not very well done because it's complicated, it's expensive, and it's easier just to release something and say something and start propagating. But there are, there's no data. So if you are a carnivore lover and you really love the carnivore, please organize a randomized control trial and please show us somehow that A, it's gonna help in the short term, but B, more importantly, the long term. This is my big fear for these people. If you do it for a month and you lose 20 pounds and you feel better, great. But 20 years from now, your risk of heart disease and cancer and other medical problems are gonna be very significant. Not eating fiber for three years. Well, uh, tell me about your, your your gut health and your microbiome. Is that something that's important to you? Eating, uh, you know, huge amounts of saturated fat every single day for years on end. Well, what is that doing to your LDL, your ApoB, your arteries? But if you're not looking at those things and you're only looking at the mental health improvement or the, I don't have, you know, say digestive discomfort anymore. You can you can you can create this anecdote and tell a story that makes it seem like it is a solution. But I just think it's short-sighted and it's not evidence-based. And if you want an evidence-based solution, there's plenty of evidence out there that has been documented over years and years and years of dietary solutions that actually do work long-term and improve your hard outcomes in the long-term. If you want quick fixes and short-term improvements, yeah, yeah, anything can make you feel better short-term. You know, you can go on a crash diet and feel amazing for six weeks, but can you sustain it long-term? I'd say probably not. So interesting. Uh, whilst you were talking, I was looking at the trends for the carnivore diet and the country that has the most searches for that phrase, carnivore diet, do you want to have a guess what it is probably, in the world? It better not be Australia. It's Australia. Yeah. So over the last, since 2004, the country with the most searched for phrase for the carnivore diet is Australia, wow. but then New Zealand, then the United States and Canada, then South Africa. That obviously connects into culture for me and the subject of culture. Australian culture, South African culture, you know, the, the culture in the United States with, with food is deeply entwined with animal agriculture. Television networks in Australia called Seven News, I think it's called, um, which is very popular. And they often have been seen to slam vegans and slam plant-based diets. The man who owns that television network is a big ranch owner. He owns huge swathes of land in Australia where cows are reared for beef. Tell us about like growing up there, what it was like with meat and the culture of eating animals because I, I, it's a it's a pretty big part of Australian life, right? Absolutely. I mean, that is baked into our culture. We're, we're a culture of, of farmers. I mean, we have huge farming industry, dairy and beef, and I think that the government love to support those industries. For them, it's like national pride. It's, a, it's who we are. It's in our body. It's in our DNA. So we're going to be extremely slow to evolve out of that way. And I think that as these plant-based alternatives started to pop up. I mean, I, I hate to get political because I don't know much about politics. I stay out of it. But you are seeing this sort of grudge match between government policy when it comes to dairy, beef, all these kinds of things, and then these plant-based alternatives. It seems like they're starting to sort of clash heads a little bit. and They, they don't like it. The government, they do not like the idea that dairy industry is going down or people are choosing plant-based options more and more. So... Yeah, I think it's going back to culture. We love meat. I mean, I grew up eating so much meat. It's it's wild to think. Like it was just and it was a lot of red meat. Steak was like it's just such an Aussie blokey 
manly thing. Like here it's, it's you know, when you're having a, a social gathering, especially as like a young man growing up, it was barbecues. That's what we do. We love a barbie. You know, we love to chuck our meat on the barbie and have sausages and steaks and prawns and, you know, every, prawn on the barbie is actually something that we don't do that often, although the rest of the world seems to think we do. <laughs> shrimp on the barbie, yeah, which barbie. is a, like a famous Australian expression. Right? Yeah, I've never put a shrimp on the barbie, but, yeah, it's, it's a famous term. But, yeah, it's, it's in our culture. We love our barbecues. We don't have it. Wait. We don't have the most sophisticated culture, let's be honest. Aussies are <laughs> we're pretty simple. We're simple, nice people, but we're not the most sophisticated and elegant in our culture. We like our barbecues and our meat. And I think to convert the vast majority of the Aussie population towards eating a more whole food plant-based diet is a uphill battle and one of the most challenging things that we can do. But I will say that I think social media, Netflix, game changers, those kinds of um, interventions, so to speak, definitely help with messaging. And, and some people will change based on seeing things like that. So I think it's a, it's a ground-up approach. It, it takes people to have big platforms and try to spread these messages that go counter to what they're hearing from government policy, public health messaging. Yeah. But I'm not that surprised that, yeah, that we Google Carnivore a lot because it tells us what we want to hear. What they want to hear is our all-meat diet is something that's good for our health, and somehow they've spun this narrative that's actually good for the planet. So, you know, if, you, if you're hearing if that's what you want to hear, if you're eating a lot of meat already, then they're going to keep doing it. People like to hear good things about their bad habits, don't they? That's it. Yeah, I, I, just staying on culture for a sec. So obviously being a young man growing up in Australia, eating meat is synonymous with masculinity and strength. You know, if anyone who follows you on social media, you're a very strong young man. You, I've seen you climb ropes up trees. You know, you're you're obviously being a fitness and, and being active is clearly a big part of your life and probably has been for, for most of your life. What has it been like sort of switching to a plant-based diet and becoming a herbivore? You know, you are, uh, we are herbivores and our herbivorous humans, whereas, you know, you are really in a sea of kind of, you know, omnivorous slash carnivorous, not carnivorous, but omnivorous uh, humans and other bros, you know, who might look down on you for eating a plant-based diet because there is this culture, especially in places like United States, Australia, South Africa, where Eating plants and not eating meat is synonymous, which is which we'll talk a bit about toxic masculinity, but it's it's synonymous with femininity and women and girls and boys always eat meat, girls don't. You know, there's this sort of like gender, this really strange toxic gender behavior that, that somehow seems to have found its way into our society where killing animals and eating meat is associated with being a man. And that if you don't do those things and you're not a man in the traditional sense, and you know, you might get bullied and picked on, but like what has it been like with your circle of friends and, and, and have you experienced and seen any of this type of behavior since you since you made the switch five years ago? Yeah, absolutely. Even for me to make the switch in the beginning was I had to surrender. In my head, I was like, i got to surrender to a couple of things. The first thing I'm surrendering is I'm probably going to lose all my muscle. But at that point, I didn't care because I just wanted to fix my diabetes. So I wasn't concerned really about how my physique would change. I was willing and I was okay with losing my muscle, losing my performance in the gym and looking very different. I was okay with that because I was adopting new values and new ethics, new morals. And that for me was a fair trade-off. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice my physique for my values and ethics and my health. Thankfully, that wasn't the case, but I didn't know that at the beginning. I actually thought I was going to wither away in my bone. Waste away. Dust, yes. So <laughs> that was a concern at the beginning. Very quickly, you realize that you don't need to eat animals to get protein or build muscle. You don't. You, it's not a necessity. 
yes, you can obviously build muscle eating animals and yes, you can get a lot of protein from eating animals, but you can also build plenty of muscle and get plenty of protein from plants. And you don't have to just take an anecdote of someone who's gone plant-based for five years and hasn't lost any muscle or has gained muscle, but you can look at the research. There's plenty of research looking at plant protein versus animal protein and hard outcomes, not just digestive bioavailability, like hard outcomes. How much muscle does a person keep or build over a period of, say, six weeks or whatever the study is? There's no difference, right? So... Once I realized that I could actually look exactly the same, if not better, and perform well, I was like, okay, this is actually, this is fine. This is easy. So when it comes to the masculinity and being a man, you know, men eat meat, what I've come to realize is actually to be a man, to pay somebody to breed, feed, and kill an animal for you does not make you a man, nor does hunting an animal make you a man. To me, what makes you a man is standing up for what you believe in despite what culture or social pressure or your friends or family or what the world thinks. So I feel like more of a man now eating a plant-based diet amongst a population of essentially very heavy meat eaters who uh, think that they're the blokey bugs because they eat the meat. But actually, I think that if you can choose to be plant-based for whatever reasons you want and hold your ground and do it confidently and own that space, that that to me is is a you know a characteristic of a man. That what, what how, you know how do you define a man? It's very it's this is something that probably psychologists will understand a lot better. But I just in my head I just know that I'm I feel good in my skin. I know that my health is very well controlled. Choosing to eat no animals and to be able to do that amongst people who are eating animals and maybe tease you or look at you funny. If I can hold my ground in that situation, that makes me a man and I'm happy to do that. Um, I will say, this is very interesting, is that I haven't copped much bullying, right? I haven't, I haven't had to deal with that, thankfully. But somebody, a man in my life very close to me, has dealt with quite a lot of bullying and it's my dad. He is an is a amazing man. He's an he's a eye doctor, an ophthalmologist. He's a successful photographer. He is a brilliant, smart guy and he is in great shape physically, mentally, and he chose to go plant-based, at least 95-plus percent plant-based when I did. We did it together. And he's been like this for five years, same same duration as I have. The bullying that he's gotten in his circles has far exceeded anything that I've had to deal with. And that's kind of the saddest thing. You know, it's like he's in his 60s. Why would he, Why should he have to deal with bullying from these friends who he's been friends with for 30, 40 years they're bullying him about his choice to eat a plant-based diet because they grew up in South Africa and South Africa is a very meat-heavy culture. They call it a braai, right? We call it a barbie. They love eating meat as well. It's a part of their DNA, so to speak, quote-unquote. So he's had to deal with quite a lot of bullying from that circle of friends and very quickly you realise who are your real friends and who are the ones that are those superficial people that are in your lives because of history rather than actual true valuable friend mm, that's so interesting it's clearly an age thing right i think i think in places like south africa and australia um i grew up in zimbabwe but my family are from south africa they live in south africa now and i've experienced that culture it's a more conservative culture the older you are the more conservative a lot of people seem to be whether it's diet religion philosophy politics strange kind of paradox but i think i think what we need really is more young men like you who are prepared to speak out publicly and talk about how this has changed their, your lives and how it's improved your your physical and mental well-being 
And it's just representation because, you know, if we look at the statistics, 80 plus percent of vegans are women. Uh, and that is because of what we just talked about, because of a culture which does not want to allow men to cut out meat. And the irony is, and, you know, we can t- t- leave ethics and environment out for a second, you know, manliness and we talk about sexual health for a sec, and there's a, there's a there's a very good experiment done. It's anecdotal, of course, on the game changers, where it talks about um, sexual function for men uh, is is dramatically improved on a plant based diet. It just makes sense if you're eating a diet high in phytonutrients, substances that are going to improve blood flow. Let's be honest, you know, when you're in the bedroom, blood flow is going to be improved. But if you're eating a, a diet high in saturated fat, all those micro capillaries, all those parts of your body whether it's your brain or your yeah <laughs> what do you call it in australia your johnson is that what they call it in america it's going to struggle because you're, you're essentially blocking your body up with all these things but you know the culture seems so much more powerful at maintaining the status quo and that's the thing you know when we live in a culture where everyone is doing something then you feel like an odd one out don't you and this is um, one of the things that we struggle with as human beings there's a great experiment which i reference a few times on this podcast where a young woman walks into a doctor's surgery or a dentist surgery and there's people sitting in the in the in the surgery they're all actors and she's not she walks in and she sits down suddenly there's a beep everyone around her gets up and stands up and she's looking around she's thinking what's going on she said she stays seated and they all stand up and then sit down and this happens on and on for about 10 15 minutes a beep goes on they all stand up and then sit down after a while the people who are sitting the actors all go into the doctor's studio and disappear and then new people come in who are not actors by that time she started standing up and sitting down because of the beep She's not questioning it. Everyone else is doing it. It's a really brilliant experiment. You can check it out on YouTube. But what that illustrates is that human beings, we're kind of like pack creatures, aren't we? We are so good at mimicking and copying each other just so that we can fit in. And I think it's a real bold ability of a human being to be able to put your head up amongst a, a, above the pulpit and be different and lead the way. Because I think if we look at like our history of our species, human beings are a species of great ape. And you look at our cousins, you know, orangutans and chimpanzees and all these creatures, we are genetically, almost genetically identical to them, 99.9998 or something percent DNA. And these creatures live on plants. They thrive on plants. Yes, they might have the occasional insect and sometimes chimps have been known to hunt and um, eat meat when necessary, when they're, when they're struggling with food. But our cousins, our closest cousins are herbivorous creatures. So, you know, the science supports it. Evolution supports it. But yet our culture maintains this way of eating and living mostly because of power, money, and you know, the advertising industry, which is able to just keep pushing these ideas and this way of living. But I think things are changing. You know, you are seeing massive pushback. You know, in the United States, there's constant misinformation campaigns or propaganda, as I like to call it, pushing people to drink more milk. Audrey Plaza, this actress, did this campaign, which was brilliant, but ridiculous, where she talked about wood milk and how wood milk was so disgusting. And it was like a, a, a kind of comedy. It was really a hit piece against plant-based milks. But I think the dairy industry and the meat industry are going to continue to try everything they can to maintain uh, this way of living and eating. But it's just not sustainable. And no matter what people say, and no matter how much they kick and scream, our planet is shifting and changing because of our diets. You know, Animal agriculture is responsible for upward of like 18, 19% of greenhouse gas emissions. It's ocean dead zones, it's deforestation. It's, you know, I don't need to, I'm preaching to the choir here probably, but like, you know, this is the stuff that's killing our planet. So even if, a, you know, even if you, you want to eat a carnivore diet and eat all that meat, what are you doing to our planet? What are you doing to 
the future uh, of our world. You know, young kids growing up today might grow up in a world where there are no forests because we've cut everything down to plant soybeans for cows. Uh, and then vegans are destroying the rainforest. I mean, come on. Like, like. Yeah, that, that, to be honest, the way the narrative has been spun lately is actually mind-blowing. There's, there's like circles of people in the carnivore and, and the regenerative agriculture movement who actually point the finger at, at people who are vegan and plant-based saying that they are responsible for the vast majority of environmental destruction and the harm towards animals and a complete fallacy. I don't know how that story has been told, but like for me, what started as a health journey has rapidly turned into something that is much more, you know, much stronger, well-rooted in environments and ethics. And to now, you know, hear people in the beginning, it was like, uh, you're vegan for health. You, you have no idea what you're talking about. It's so bad for your health. You have to eat meat. You have to eat eggs. But they were like, oh, you're vegan for ethics and animal? Okay, fair enough. But now, these days, it's you, they don't even give you that. They're like, well, it's not actually better for the animals. It's worse. Avocados and almonds are destroying rainforests. And it's just that, like if you, if you want to know the truth, there is plenty of evidence done by these organizations and scientists and researchers who are not vegan. They don't have a bias. They don't have an agenda. You can look it up for yourself. There's resources online that has been studying, like experts who study these things. You don't have to listen to your carnivore guru because Paul Saladino. I don't want to say the name. I've decided to no longer give him the microphone or any more mics. What, what I find what I find funny is it's just a, it's a really juvenile, but the, the the word salad is in his name. I just I that's just that's just hilarious. I love but that. I mean. I love that. That. <laughs> We, we don't have to focus on him for a sec, but it's more just about like misinformation. Why are there so many people like him out there who are not nutritional specialists? They're not dietitians or, you know, they don't have a, a training. They have not worked in randomized control trials, but they're out there advocating for a specific way of eating and talking about nutrition as if they are experts. How do these people get away with this stuff? I actually think it's a, it's a simple formula. I don't even think it's that complicated. First and foremost, it makes them a lot of money. Number one. They can make a shitload of money selling their supplements or their, their just just creating this narrative. Secondly, we've already spoken about it. People want you to tell them what they want to hear, and they're good at doing that. They, he'll tell them that your habits currently that that everyone else says are bad for you will actually they're good for you, and they'll also say, "I have the solution." Everyone else is wrong, but I have the answer. Listen to me. Like it's just it's the same shit over and over. It's the same red flags that you just see over and over again. And, you know, a lot of people find the messaging sexy that you can actually eat only animals and be even healthier and have a six-pack and all this. And, you know, he's always got his shirt off. So do I. I'm, I'm, I get it. I get it. But it, it, that's – and actually, we can talk about this if you don't mind. I actually wouldn't mind just diving into this a little bit. The shirtless messenger, right, for some reason – also known as the thirst trap. Thirst trap. We can call it the thirst trap. We can call it whatever you want. I mean, I go beyond just shirtless. I just wear my budgie smugglers. Like I am as basically as close to nude as you can get on Instagram. But hear me out. Yes, it's vain. Yes, it is superficial. But if it's attached to a deeper message that more people are going to hear, more eyes are going to see, and I can actually move the needle in a, in a positive, productive way, then I'm okay with that. Plus, before Instagram and without Instagram, this is how I live my life. I don't wear, I mean, I had to buy these clothes on the way to this podcast. I don't even own clothes. Okay. It's like, I'm happy being, <laughs> I'm happy without my clothes on. And I just choose to share myself like that on Instagram. When it comes to the carnival message, people will pin the physique and the look and the image to the diet. 
right? I've looked the same on a paleo, keto, and plant-based diet now for many, many years, okay? I'm not saying that my diet is why I look the way I look. People forgetting the stimulus is important. You need to actually exercise and train your body and know what you're doing. Like that is a huge part of this. Yes, these diets can help you maybe perform better or recover better and get the physique that you want. But to say completely like the liver king or Paul Saladino that I look like this and all these veins and all these shredded feathered muscles are because I eat liver, it's bullshit. They know it's bullshit. It's not true. You can look like that on a spectrum of diets. It's absolutely nonsense. But people want to hear it. It's a sexy message. It looks better. And I think that also probably another reason why I don't get bullied like my dad is because I've, I'm, I've got more muscles than him, which is sad and pathetic. But I reckon if my dad was jacked and was vegan, his mates would be like, wow, that's awesome, man. I'm going to try that. But because he's a thinner guy who's not jacked, they it's an easy target and they bully him. You know, like if let's say Liver King or Saladino didn't have the physiques they had and they were pushing this diet, do you, re- you really reckon it would be as popular? I, I highly doubt it. Body image in our culture and beauty standards is such a fascinating subject and we could probably do a whole hour talking about it. But like we are obsessed with muscles. We're obsessed with bodies. We're obsessed with how people look. But what's so fascinating is that just because someone looks good on the outside, it doesn't mean that they that everything's going well on the inside. You know, this whole idea that like fat is bad and skinny is good. You can be super skinny and could be dying of some kind of terrible cancer. We shouldn't be judging people based on how they appear. And, you know, time and time again, I find myself filled with rage when i hear people commenting on the bodies of others whether a person is a little overweight or they're too skinny in the person's mind or anything for that matter i just cannot understand why people think it's okay to go on social media and comment and criticize and give unsolicited feedback about other people's bodies i just i just wish people would stop it because what it does is it creates such an unhealthy relationship with our bodies you know people end up with body dysmorphia they end up with all kinds of debilitating psychological challenges where they don't feel enough they constantly feel they have to compete you know it's particularly bad with the young men i notice and it's got worse over the years with things like bigorexia and body dysmorphia where young men feel so much pressure to have the perfect body and if they don't have the perfect body they're not going to meet the perfect woman or the perfect man and nobody's going to love them because they just don't have that perfection and social media is making it worse all the time because the algorithms on particularly on instagram if i spend like five minutes just looking at a, a couple of like fit young men or fit young women the algorithm will just show me more and more and more of that. All I'm going to see if I go in my Discover feed are half-naked men and women and people um, in their bikinis and their pudgy smugglers, as you called them. And it just reinforces this message that this is what beautiful looks like. This is what ideal looks like. And it's such an unhealthy culture. And Klaus and I often talk about the diet wars that are going on in the world today. There's the keto, there's the plant pace, and everyone is just constantly fighting. And for me, I just try to remind people about like, what is the motivation? Why do people, um, why are people motivated for you to eat in a particular way? And for me and for our culture, the herb- herbivore culture, our really reason for being is we want you to be healthier. We want you to live longer. We want you to be disease-free. I don't care about like pills and potions and selling you supplements as soon as any of these advocates start trying to sell you things that you don't necessarily need, that's when red flags come for me. And I start to worry about a person's motivation. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with making money. We all got to survive. But I think when we start to advocate in a way where we deprioritize people's health and well-being, especially their mental health, you know, I think we're starting to move into an area where I'm going to question you and, and then what you're doing. 
talking about body image and you know the 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 status of, of of one's health i can tell you from personal experience at the peak of my keto diet when i was 3 4 months in i looked shredded i had abs i i was low body fat percentage i had plenty of muscle and my health was terrible not just my physical health not only was my blood glucose through the roof and i felt like i was insulin resistant but my mental health was suffering immensely do you know how scary it is to be resistant to the insulin that you have to inject? So my body doesn't even make it. Now I have to inject it and that's not even working. That, that's a very scary place to be. On the outside, I looked great and people would look at me and go, oh, what, what diet is he? Keto? I've got to do that one. That's obviously working. No, people need to be more transparent and be more honest with where they're at. And which is why I, I had to bring this message to social media and say, listen, guys, I know I've been raving about the keto diet for four months, but just hear me out. I look thin on the outside, but on the inside, something else is happening here and I'm just going to share this with you. And it triggered a lot of people. A lot of my low-carb keto followers hated it and they dropped off, which is fine. That's okay. They don't have to stay around. But my job is not to keep everyone happy. My job is to share my honest story and pair that story with the evidence because that's what people need to see. What is the scientific evidence? Because the carnival movement, in my opinion, and probably not just opinion, they don't have much evidence to stand on. They've got the vanity, they've got the physiques, they've got the impressive looking people and these brilliant marketing machines that are you know, spreading this message. But show me evidence, show me long-term health outcomes, show me that it reduces the risk of chronic diseases, show me that it can add years to your life, show, show me these things. Until you show me that, I'm not going to just play roulette with it. And there's, you know, it's, it's mm. a risk in my opinion. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And and one thing that we don't often talk about is privilege as well. The carnivore diet is a diet of the privilege. 99.9999% of humans on this planet could not afford a carnivore diet. You know, it is the is the is the privilege of, of wealthy people because, you know, in many parts of the world, meat is very expensive and it's it's becoming more increasingly expensive. Um it's also heavily subsidized by governments across the planet and it's a fraction of the price it really should be. But that's a whole another podcast to talk about that. So let's turn the conversation to animals. So to me, you are Dr. Drew Little. <laughs> I, I'm always seeing you with some kind of animal. You know, I hear you talk about animals. You know, it really warms my heart the way you talk about animals. You live with a beautiful, gorgeous staffy called Dennis. Some say he's a dog. Some say he's a kookaburra. I can't tell. <laughs> but yeah, tell me about your evolving relationship with animals and like, you know, what was it like as a child? You know, what did you love them then? Or, or has it been a more recent thing that your, your love has grown towards them? Well, I would, I mean, if you asked me this question 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would always say that I loved animals, but my actions would uh, beg to differ because I was eating them every single meal of my life. I don't think I'd ever had a vegan meal, not even a meal. I mean, it sounds crazy. I barely eat an, an animal in five years, yet, you know, back then I wouldn't even go one meal without eating an animal. So, but at the same time, I would tell you that I loved animals. I loved dogs. I loved all animals. That's what I would have said. But, you know, when the light bulb goes off, and when you really sort of dive in and do your research into how these industries operate and what the animals are experiencing, uh, the torture and the harm and all of these things that, again, we're preaching the converted here, everyone knows pretty much what, what goes on, then you actually start to develop a real amazing relationship with these animals. And I've seen people, it's funny because, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, I've had these flocks of cockatoos that would like land on my my you know my windowsill and i'd feed them in the morning there'd be like 40 cockatoos around me i've rescued my dog from the pound we've been together for seven years i 
walk other dogs at the pound as well. For many years, I was a volunteer and like all of these ways that my love for animals has actually started to show up more and more in my life. And the comments are often like, they know, they know that you're vegan and they, they, it's like a magnet, right? Like they know that you're now fully connected whilst before I would say I love it, but there was a disconnect because I was eating them all the time. So yeah, I mean, look, I absolutely, I always say, and I'm not afraid to say this, I, <laughs> I hate humans. I love animals. Like I just have this sort of like throwaway phrase that humans suck, animals are the best. But the truth is, I think that when you change your, your values and you understand that the food that you choose to eat is voting with your dollar and it is like standing your ground with what you believe in and your morals, that the energy changes around you. I know it sounds crazy, it sounds a bit woo-woo, but you know, I, I feel like I'm more connected now than I ever have been to the non-human beings out there. And I, I you know, it's like I said, it started as a journey into, into health. It was, it was a journey into improving my diabetes management. But it has now evolved into something that is equal parts health, animals, and, and the planet. Mm, absolutely amazing. One more thing before uh, I let you go and we wrap up. One of your many skills is that you sing. I think it's one of the first things I, I noticed about you when I was like, you know, learning a bit about you. Yeah, one of your musical talents. Um, love to hear one of your songs. Can we can we play one on the podcast? Well, obviously we'll play it like later. But like, oh, what, what is one of your favorite like a live songs? a live show right now? <laughs> get a guitar if you really want. <laughs> Yeah, look, I used to, uh, that used to be my, I mean, it still is a passion, but that, that was like what I thought would be my career. I wanted to be a singer-songwriter. I recorded a handful of songs, you know, many years ago. One of them was written right after I was diagnosed with diabetes. That was the way for me to put all the emotions into just that four minutes of me fully expressing them. And um, I recorded in the studio and I'm, I'm very happy with it. It's, it's, um, it is on Spotify. Only like two people have probably listened to it, but I'm happy it's out there. <laughs> I'm one of them. You're one of them. You've got it, yeah. You and my mum. The, the two people. <laughs> What's so, the song called? Yeah, it's called My Two Hands. release so i've got i've re released two and i've got one more coming which i'm excited to release i'm actually in the studio working on it again it's like a rework so i fully recorded it it's mixed mastered ready to go and i sat on it for like three years and i'm now ready to just reignite it and, and release it as something fresh but yeah if people want to listen to some of my songs on spotify please do i've made about 50 cents over the last three years on spotify so <laughs> certainly not thank you spotify <laughs> spotify supporting young artists yes. as always yes exactly well, Drew, thank you so much uh, for being on the PBN podcast. Obviously, uh, I can't let you get away without the, the special final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, 
obviously you're not going to eat the pig because you're vegan. But if I could give you one vegan dish, one music artist and one book, what would you take with you? Oh, that's nice. I like this question. Is this, do you do this at the end of all your shows? Okay, it just shows how many episodes I've listened to. You've put me on the spot. I love it. <laughs> okay, so vegan dish. Is that is? I mean, like my brain straight away is going to like what's the healthiest or what to survive. But you know what? I can't go. If I'm on an island, just give me fruit, tropical fruit. I A big bowl of fruit. I'm not scared of the carbs. <laughs> I'm not scared of the fructose, even though a lot of people online will tell you to be scared of that as well. Fruit is extremely healthy. tastes delicious. I love it. So I would take a bowl of fruit. A book. Now, I'm actually just reading. I just started. I'm like a couple pages in. It's probably a book that everyone's read, um, but I only just discovered I'm late to the party called New Earth. I don't know if you've read it. So, uh, yes, I have. You yeah. have? Yeah. Okay. So, Eckhart um, That's right. So, I mean, because that's the current book, front of mind, that's what I would take. What was the other one? Uh, music artist. Well, this ties into my story a little bit. And it's not somebody who I listen to at the moment, but it's sentimental. When I was. 12 years old, the first CD I ever got that my parents bought me was a Jack Johnson CD, right? And I'd only ever listened to the radio before that and heard like top 40 songs, that sort of pop pop music. And I remember chucking the CD in and hearing this song with acoustics and other, other instruments and a different type of production with this like island spirit to it. And I was like, this is the most incredible sound I've ever heard. I want to be like Jack Johnson. I, I need to get a guitar, start writing. And that is literally what got me into trying to become a singer-songwriter. I just wanted to be like Jack Johnson. So sentimental value, I'd have to take that Jack Johnson CD, that first one that I got all those years ago. I can't remember what it's called. It's, I know what the, I can see the album. He's got like a, a hoodie on or a raincoat and there's rain coming down. That would be it. I'd be listening to that all day. Amazing. Well, he has a beautiful voice and it's definitely someone to uh, aspire to be like because he's also a beautiful person as well as are you thank you so much uh, for this episode it was really great to hear a bit more uh, about your life oh, there's so many other subjects i wanted to talk to you about but i do like to keep the episodes about an hour uh, so hopefully we can have an episode two at some point mate i would love that there's like like you i could talk to you about many many other things had a blast chatting to you today i hope people enjoy it and if we can do a round two i'd be more than happy to do it Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next time with more food, fashion, veganism, animals, and everything in between. Mm-hmm.